Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer and I study international space cooperation, space treaties and space debris at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. Yesterday, I Skyped Daniel Porras, a space security fellow at UNIDIA, the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. Daniel focuses on political and legal issues surrounding space security and, in particular, the progressive development of sustainable norms of behaviour for space. He advises governments, academia and commercial actors on security-related issues such as the development of counter-space technology and the application of international law to space activities. In this episode, we talk about space weaponization, space debris and India's recent ASAT test. In the spirit of disarmament, Daniel has selected Black Sabbath's War Pigs to begin and end this podcast. over Skype with Daniel Porras, who is a space security fellow at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. Um, And I'm currently talking to Daniel in Geneva. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. So Daniel's been in Geneva at the meeting of the Group of Governmental Experts, or GGE, as he calls it. Daniel, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So uh, I work for the UN Institute for Disarmament Research, or UNIDIR, and we're an independent uh, think tank inside of the United Nations. So a little bit with one foot in and one foot out of the of the system. But um, we provide, among other things, uh, technical expertise for various UN processes on uh, the prevention of an arms race in outer space uh, or other things like um, space security. But the PAROS, the Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space, has kind of been one of the big ones lately that uh, the UN is really trying to further. Unfortunately, this issue's kind of been um, at a at a roadblock for quite a lot of years, probably as long as I've been alive, uh, <laughs> which is probably longer than you would think. Um, but uh, in the last year, we started seeing a lot of movement. And one of the things that the United Nations has been trying to do is uh, they formed a group of governmental experts on further practical measures for the prevention of an arms race in outer space, PAROS. And the 
this group of governmental experts met for two two-week sessions over the last year. Uh, well, there was one in a meeting in August and another in March. And it was 25 experts from all over the world coming together to try and look at elements of what might actually go into a treaty that tries to prevent uh, an arms race in outer space. And fortunately, there seemed to be kind of two camps as to how you should really achieve this, this ultimate goal. Um, on the one side, the, the Russians and the Chinese um, back in 2008, they proposed a treaty that would prevent the placement of weapons in outer space. Um, a lot of countries are very much in favor of this. Um, in particular, countries that are not uh, necessarily considered like, uh, not just not space-faring nations, but not really like space actors. However, they're space benefactors, if you will, like, you know, mm -hmm. developing countries, you know, countries all across, uh, across the world who utilize, you know, they still get the benefits of telecommunications and things. Um, they generally support anything that will prevent an arms race in space. Um, however, a lot of the other space-faring nations um, think that maybe the conditions aren't necessarily right for a treaty, um, particularly one on the placement of weapons in space. Um, so this is a lot of the Western countries, uh, such as you know, um, our, the United States, Canada, Australia, Japan, but not, which are not Western countries, but in the UN we consider them uh, a part of sort of the Western group, uh, as mm -hmm. well as um, you know, the UK, France, Italy, Germany. Uh, the Netherlands, and one of their or their issues with the prevention of the placement of weapons in space is that one, what's a weapon in space? How do you define a weapon in space? So much of our right. technology is, you know, what we call dual use in the sense that it can be used for civilian or military purposes, but it's also multi-purpose. Like something can be defensive, or it can be offensive, but it's really hard to tell what things are in space. So um, we can't even really define weapon. So how do you verify that people are not just complying, but like nobody's stepping out of the lines or that anyone's cheating? And it's pretty tough to do. Uh, mm. So, and then the other issue is that it also doesn't cover everything. Um, when we talk about the prevention of the placement of weapons in space, there's not an explicit reference in that title to um, preventing uh, ground-based weapons from being used against objects in space. So the recent India uh, demonstration, the Indian test that just took place where they blew up a satellite, um, something like that might not necessarily be covered. Although within the actual um, uh, text, something could be added potentially in a treaty to cover that kind of thing. And then you just change the title, I suppose. Um, mm. But this group of governmental experts uh, met in Geneva for the last two weeks um, to try and talk about different possibilities of how you might be able to work something like that out, along with other different approaches, maybe completely different um, ideas about how you could do, uh, how, how you could potentially have a, a treaty. And I mean, unfortunately, we weren't able to get to a consensus on any particular approach. Uh, but we discussed a lot of really great ideas, and I think in the future, we'll be able to utilize some of those to kind of take these ideas forward and who knows, come up with some, some other ideas. Um, and another approach, of course, that, that has been discussed by the Western countries, they don't just, uh, don't just come up with, um, I don't wanna say criticisms necessarily, but uh, objections to the treaty, mm. um, but they do have their own proposals as well. And one is to propose um, voluntary measures. So what we call transparency and confidence building measures uh, of a yeah. non-legally binding nature. And those, 
uh, you could come up with a variety of things, but it would mean that states would voluntarily offer up information rather than having someone sort of um, checking in on them. Uh, and at the same time, there wouldn't be sort of like a, a, a legal aspect to it. It's sort of like a promise. So a country says, okay, I promise to, for example, not create more debris than is absolutely necessary. And most countries tend to follow that. Um, so there are these space debris mitigation guidelines in the United Nations. And most countries tend to be pretty good about not, um, not creating more debris than is necessary. But every once in a while, you know, things, things go in a different direction. And so we have to have maybe some rules of the road to determine how we conduct activities in outer space to make sure that we can keep doing it for a long time. And so this group of governmental experts, I think, was a good step in the, in the direction, in the, in the conversation. Um, but it's pretty clear that we've still got a long way to go. So let's talk for a minute about um, the Chinese anti-satellite test in 2007. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that there were discussions happening about regulating space weapons, but that the 2007 test really focused the world's attention on the need to do it um, and also to regulate the creation of debris in space. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair assessment or um, is, there, is there more history there that we're missing? No, I mean, to... There was a little period there um, around 2007 to 2009 that really highlighted uh, the, the dangers of space debris. Um, but up until the 2007 incident, there hadn't really been a lot of sort of single events that just really uh, kicked up the amount of debris that was being created in space. So if you look at a, there are lots of graphs and charts out there that show you the amount of debris that has been created over the last 50 years. And you see these big mm -hmm. jumps. Uh, right in first in 2007, when the um, when the Chinese ASAT test took place, and that that was done at an altitude where the debris was up so high that it's going to be there for. I mean, I've I've heard estimates anywhere between decades and hundreds of years. So yeah, that yeah. continues to pose a threat to uh, other objects. And maybe that's um, part of the point as well. Like we don't necessarily know exactly how long that debris will be up there because exactly. we're still not entirely sure of the you know various forces at play. Um, but yeah. China did their test at 800 kilometers, I think. Is right. That right. So still in low Earth orbit, but um, yeah, like and, reasonably I mean, high up. The the International Space Station, you know, flies as low as 400. You know, it's between like 400 kilometers and um, I can't remember how high it goes exactly, but. Um, they definitely have to take that into consideration. There are a lot of other low Earth orbit satellites that operate at that height. Um, so it, it's presented a problem over the last few years, and we hope that it doesn't you know, continue to, uh, to create more, you know, to generate more debris. It's one of those self-perpetuating self problems. Yeah. Um, so, so what happened in 2007? Can you talk us through um, the, the Chinese ASAT test? Sure. It was, uh, China had a defunct weather satellite that was flying around and they were able to use a direct ascent kinetic kill missile, uh, which is essentially a, uh, a missile that has like a big, um, you know, big sort of warhead, like a ramming device in the front. Um, and they just launch it really, really fast and are able to strike a satellite um, and they were actually able to destroy it. Uh, it created quite a bit of debris. Um, I think it was somewhere around like 2,000 pieces of debris, uh, a little over 2,000 pieces of debris. Um, and that stuff's going to be there for uh, a pretty long time. And 
because it was done technically during a, a peacetime situation, there was no uh, necessity necess uh, necessarily to do this test. Uh, that if that any of that trash were to hit something else, um, and we can conf and we were able to attribute that trash to to the Chinese test, and China would technically be liable under the liability convention. Right. So the UN liability convention on you know, objects in space. Yeah, yeah. So the liability convention is um, one of the major treaties governing space activities that came out uh, after the Outer Space Treaty. And basically it says that if you fire something, if you put something in space, you're liable for it and you're liable for the parts thereof. Um, so if you have a defunct satellite or bits that have broken off your satellite and they run into something else, that's you're liable for that. You're supposed to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a fairly sensible approach to space activities, you know, very, very much in line with rules of the road that we have here on Earth. Um, but it, I guess, uh, the liability convention doesn't necessarily dissuade people from doing these kinds of tests. Um, the, so in space security terms, one of the reasons why the Chinese ASAT test was also really uh, marks a, a shift in the way that things were, the trends that were happening at the time, is because the following year, um, the United States, who hadn't done an active uh, sort of ASAT test in quite a long time, uh, they did uh, a demonstration. Um, there was a NASA satellite that had been launched that wasn't working, uh, it was still full of hydrazine, and it provided a very good opportunity for the United States to um, use one of its ballistic missile interceptors to intercept the satellite on the way down and destroy it to make sure that the that the satellite would burn up. Mm -hmm. But it was very convenient that it happened the very following year after China had just done a test, and all of a sudden everyone was talking about the necessity to develop ASATs. And this conversation really started picking up uh, picking up pace uh, after these two events. And in particular, uh, we started hearing conversations in in India. Some from folks who were saying, you know, China is a geopolitical rival for us, and we're concerned that they might pose a threat to some of our space assets. And in order to dissuade them or deter them, for, or anyone for that matter, from trying to, um, you know, interfere with China's space systems, that they needed to carry out an ASAT test as well, which is what just happened. Cool. Yeah, I was going to say, that takes us to um, last week. Uh, which was Wednesday evening, Australia, Sydney time. Yep. Yep. Um, and tell us, what happened? So um, the Indian, uh, was it the Defense Organization for Research and Development? And, uh, and ISRO, which is the, um, the, the Indian Space Agency, um, they together carried out a test of a missile interceptor that was able to destroy a satellite which was um, flying at about 300 kilometers. Um, the satellite, uh, it was an Indian television satellite. Uh, it was only launched in January, and I'm not entirely sure if it was it's specifically intended for this test or not, but uh, it was very much seen as being a, a statement or declaration of arrival for the, for the Indian space program by the, by the Indian prime minister who delivered a, a quite big um, national statement right afterwards. And uh, I think they created a, something around 270 pieces of debris at 300 kilometers. 
Uh, not terribly high. The debris won't stay up for decades. It will probably just stay up for uh, weeks, maybe months. Um, you know, probably within two years, that none of the debris will be left in in orbit. But there are other things that are flying in that uh, in that orbit. In particular, I think um, you know the company Planet uh, Planet Labs, the ones who do the uh, all the cool photos from space. Uh, I think their constellation flies at 300, around 300 kilometers. Um, so some of that trash could be a, a problem for them. And hopefully it won't be. Uh, again, because India d did this as a test, the liability convention does apply. Right. And generally speaking, um, I think around that orbit, you'd have a, a fair number of sort of geosurveillance yeah. satellites of various sorts declared or otherwise. Just sort yeah. Of and whizzing around. and like I said, the... The International Space Station around four hundred flies around um, four hundred kilometers, so it's not. It, it is well within the range of uh, possible some of the possible projectiles to get up to that height. Um, but the one of the really interesting aspects of this, though, is that given all the technology that has developed over the last few years on targeting and potentially disrupting space systems, these missiles, like ballistic missile interceptors, is probably the most expensive and maybe least efficient uh, means of taking out a satellite or taking out that space system. Um, you know, you right. can electronically interfere with a satellite. You can, um, you can hack, potentially hack a space system. Uh, now that we're developing on-orbit service vehicles, that's kind of seeming to be another option. I know some folks are looking at lasers and other things. So a, a direct descent missile kind of seems a little bit um, not terribly utilitarian, uh, especially if you're considering going up against a country, you know, a major uh, space superpower like the U.S. or Russia or China. You know, being able to shoot down one satellite is probably not going to be terribly effective. Um, you would probably have to take out numerous satellites because they have redundant systems. So, mm -hmm. you know, doing something like this, it, it seems more like India was trying to... Um, uh, do this for prestige purposes, you know, sort of to say like, ah, look, you know, we know that there are, um, you know, some of the, uh, there's a special club of space superpowers that can destroy satellites. Well, we're a part of that club as well. And, um, you know, I suppose I can understand some of the reasons for it, especially because uh, there are elections coming up in the next two weeks in India. So, um, Prime Minister Modi, I know, has gotten in trouble for making his national speech about this test, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. But I, I tend to feel that this was probably done less for, um, you know, testing purposes. I think India probably already knew they could do this, but it was more sort of to, you know, declare that their that their missile defense system uh, is really sophisticated, that they can hit something even in space, uh, and sort of to to act as a deterrence against others. Um, from potentially interfering with their space systems. But again, I'm not entirely sure whether whether this technology really proves that point. Right. So why don't we have a quick chat about space weaponry in general? Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that I think you are a bit of an expert in. But before, when you were giving an introduction, you mentioned the problem of dual-use technologies and basically the difficulty in defining what is a space weapon or even defining what is a weapon in general. And it seems to me, um, I just skimmed through some sort of 
transcripts of various activities on this subject at UN conventions. And it seems to me that the problem of definitions and defining what is a weapon um, is one that a kind of is tricky because people are trying to define it in terms of a technology. So they're trying to say like, this technology is or isn't a weapon for the purposes of making an agreement. But in actual fact, the blurring of civil and military uses of space is such that really what you're trying to regulate or define is the intent behind that use of that technology. And that's a really hard thing to do um, with, a, with an agreement. Yeah, and and that's that's come to be one of the one of the big problems that we have because in coming up with an agreement, you don't want to restrict beneficial technology. So, you know, for example, on-orbit service vehicles seems to be one of the big issues that comes up with dual use because, in theory, a an on-orbit service vehicle can be used to um, repair a satellite. It can be used to refuel a satellite. So, life extension operations. It can be used to move a dead satellite into a graveyard orbit so that it no longer poses a threat as debris to other objects in, you know, some of the useful orbits. Um, it could potentially be used to remove debris. Um, I know we just saw the big experiment from uh, from the University of Surrey with their cool space harpoon. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, when you look at the space harpoon, if you are a... In a, in a situation where the world is very tense, where countries are getting very competitive again, and everyone is more reliant on space activities, especially for the military, you see a space harpoon and you think, that's not debris removal, that's a weapon. That's something that you're right. planning to use to destroy one of my satellites or, or to remove one of my satellites and to um, inhibit my ability to use space for my military operations. And, you know, how do you draw the line? Um, in many ways, you it's hard to know. I mean, even uh, this glass of water, for example, if, if I'm just drinking the glass of water, it's just a glass of water. But as soon as I hit somebody over the head with the glass, it becomes a weapon. Uh, so okay. how do you how do you determine what some of these objects are really intended to do? Uh, we have had a number of examples here in the past where uh, one country will, you know, Accuse is quite a strong word, but it might also be the right word. Uh, have accused others of having satellites in space that you know they one country claims is they're doing scientific research, and the other one says, "No, you're up there developing a weapon." Um, you know, two mm. examples that we can think of, or at least one example we can think of is last year the United States um, made accusations against the Russians that the Russians had a satellite in space with you know, these two little like bits, these other kind of probes that came off of it, it circled the satellite and moved around and then reconnected. And the Americans said, oh, you're developing a weapon. The Russians said, no, we're just developing an on-orbit service vehicle, much like you are as well. And mm. you know, it's just a scientific experiment. And the Americans said, no, it's, it's a weapon. But you can't prove it. I mean, how do you, how do you prove that it was a weapon or not? Um, likewise, the, the Russians have come out and said, that the Americans are developing um, certain types of technology that could also be weapons. And mm. they can't prove it any further than just saying, well, we saw this little satellite moving around in these bizarre orbits and making weird maneuvers. So we think you're developing something to be able to like grab our satellites and pull them out of orbit. Okay, well, unfortunately, we can't really tell what things 
can do until they do them, especially because they're in space and it's, it's very hard to, to know. Um, and even yeah. once you see an object do something, you're not totally sure why it's doing it. Um, another example of a, a situation where there was an accusation and not a lot of evidence to back it up was uh, last year as well. Um, the French Ministry of Defense came out and said that a Russian satellite was intercepting communications from one of their uh, military satellites and that, you know, um, that the, the Russians had sent this little probe to kind of park itself really close to the satellite and that it was the only reason it could be there would be to intercept communications. And, and you know, the truth of the matter is it's possible. Um, the, actually, the, that little probe had actually gotten really close to another Pakistani satellite, so it's hard to know, you know, who it was, if it was spying on in the first place, and if so, against who. Um, but, you know, other countries have done activities like this and people didn't necessarily panic. Um, but we, you can't prove you can't you know, offer up any specific evidence at why objects are doing things if you're just looking at them. Mm. And there's that real gray area between military and space, uh, like civil military uses of space and military uses of space all the way along the supply chain. So, I mean, a researcher who's got expertise in um, civil rocketry technology equally could be applied, like their research could equally applied to be applied to military uses. Um, and even the technologies that you're using, the component parts could also have the same thing going on where uh, I know in Australia, we've got some really cool um, activities where they're basically firing a very powerful laser at pieces of space debris in order to just move them slightly in their orbit and yep. make them deal but faster. Um, but the technology that they're using to like achieve this has been borrowed from weapons companies because they're the ones who have this technology readily available um, and you know are, are willing to kind of get involved and so on the one hand it's like actually a purely um, civil space debris removing activity which is being done by Australia so everyone's pretty sure that it's above board but at the same time um, if this activity was being done by a different country, then it might not be so kind of PC. Yeah. And, you know, if you read some of the reactions to the, the technology developments that are being carried out or, or that are being achieved in, by Western countries, uh, you know, for example, in, in the U.S. and across Europe, we heard about the space harpoon. It was like, oh, great, we're going to be able to remove debris. Well, in China, it was more like, ah, this company is developing weapons, you know, could potentially be developing a weapon for the military to try and, you know, spear Chinese satellites. Um, right. In conflict. So, you know, it, it's hard to be able to, uh, to determine. And so one of the reasons that we're trying to come up with treaties or with uh, transparency and confidence building measures, at least, is to try and lower the, uh, the, the fear factor with some of those technological developments to make sure that people don't see these experiments or see these developments and think, oh, you know, things are getting hotter. The, there's a bigger possibility for conflict in space. Therefore, we need to continue developing new technologies. Um, another great example of this is the U.S. Uh, recently, the U.S. Um, put out their missile defense review and called for um, greater emphasis on space-based missile 
detection. So this would mean putting up, you know, sensors in space that would be able to monitor the Earth for uh, launches of intercontinental ballistic missiles or other types of um, missiles. Okay, that sounds sensible enough. But then along with that, they also call for, and again, the utility of this is highly questionable, but they also call for, the, for looking at placing missile interceptors in space. So being able to shoot down, you know, when a, when a missile just gets launched, to be able to launch the interceptor from a satellite um, to, to destroy it. Again, because the utility of it is so highly questionable, a lot of countries look at that and say, that's not for defense. You're planning on having missiles in orbit to be able to reach ground targets. So it, it's, like I said, the dual use problem, I think, is actually four-dimensional four in the sense that it's civilian and uh, military, but also offensive and defensive purposes. Yeah, it's a classic question of kind of unknowability, the kind of thing, yeah. uh, if, if anyone's um, interested in this, go and Google in sociology of science or science and technology studies, the problem of GRU and bleed. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like you, you don't know until you've actually looked at that thing specifically. And even then it's unknowable because it, it could be either. Uh, it, it really interests me. And I, I, so I agree with you in a sense that I feel that um, those cooperative activities, those confidence building measures and sharing of information and so on are a really good way to make people relax a little bit about what's going on and not necessarily assume that we're in the middle of an arms race in space. But at the same time, you can see why governments, like especially the US government, would be nervous about um, teaming up with other nations to do cooperative scientific research on something that could potentially have military applications because in their mind they'd say well if there is an arms race we're just helping the other side catch up to where we are so how do you balance those two things yeah um i think we have some much larger problems uh than just necessarily an arms race in outer space and, and that is just one of the one of the issues, uh, or, or sort of one of the dimensions of a much larger problem. And so, space is just one vehicle, one mechanism that we can use to try and um, get to know each other better. I think, and to try and figure out, you know, what are our our objectives, and you know, how how can we achieve all the things that we want for our countries, for our world, for for people everywhere, I guess, in, in ways that you know, aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, I hope. Um, I, you know, when we often talk about, uh, you know, Russia's ambitions in space, China's ambitions in space, U.S. ambitions in space, we, we talk about it in this dynamic of a race. I often wonder, what are we racing towards? And, and when we look at a lot of the the goal, the stated goals and objectives, it doesn't seem like there isn't enough space for everyone. So the, the questions that we're having is more about mistrust and, and doubts. And I think there are very simple things that we can do to start in order to try and make better conditions for cooperation and ultimately, you know, putting the guns down. Uh, and of course, I work for the United Nations. Our entire purpose is to um, try and free the world of the scourge of war. So it's not, um, it's no secret that I'm here working on disarmament. Right. Um, but it, I think 
there is a hope that by engaging in some some of these activities, or especially in the, the simple things, like just starting to build on easy things, for example, notifications about rocket launches. Like that's something that is people can offer up information and we can verify the accuracy of that information. So, you know, and I'll explain. The transparency and confidence building measure, I think, to me, is a, a an area where countries offer up information willingly. So the flow of information is from me to you. But verification is your ability to confirm that in what I just told you. So that's going from you to me. Um, and I, I think if countries willingly offer up certain types of information, and then we can regularly identify that it's true, we start to build trust. And you can actually take people at their word. And unfortunately, even in outer space where we have these incredibly sophisticated systems, they're very, very expensive. A lot, a lot of times, the, you know, the, our understanding of what's going on up there is based on trust of somebody else's word. Uh, that somebody says, look, my X-37B is not carrying a nuclear weapon. And as much as some people want to look at this Boeing test vehicle that is up in space, um, that a lot of people don't know what it necessarily does, you know, we can't confirm that it doesn't necessarily have something on board that could be a, considered a weapon. We just take it on trust. So we have to build on that. And at the moment, mm. uh, especially between the big powers, there's not a lot of trust. So I think if we start small, work on some really basic things, uh, we can start building a little bit more trust and ultimately create a, a condition or a situation where you know, people say, all right, we're going to talk about a treaty of not placing weapons in outer space. And even though a verification program isn't perfect, um, relationships are such right now that we are willing to take some things on faith, uh, minimal ones, hopefully, because let's face it, when it comes to the military, you want to reduce faith to as little as possible, but at least to be willing to, to engage in a, a discussion or go through a process where you think, Look, we can get it up to 99%, but I'm willing to take that 1% on faith. Okay, let's do it. Um, and we're just not there yet. Uh, hopefully, we will be someday. I definitely hope so. And so one area where we can definitely do that is um, in debris removal. I think that makes sense as a kind of... Uh, de debris prevention, debris removal makes sense as an area that we can cooperate and um, and start to build that trust because ultimately it's in everybody's interests to not have space full of debris. Um, debris does not discriminate. It, it can hit anyone, even the person who launched it in the first place, um, as happened to France with their Ariane rocket. The, the big one that I always think of, though, is just the... Uh, we were just talking earlier about the big events that created a lot of debris. And we had that collision of the Iridium satellite and the Cosmos satellite in uh, 2009. Yeah. Um, so, and that created tons of debris. So when I met you last year, it was at the International Astronomical Congress in Bremen, and you were presenting a paper on um, debris mit mitigation, was it? And, and it was basically titled, um, No Debris, Low Debris Notification. Yeah, I was hoping you the, could tell me a little bit about that. Um, sure. So last year, I wrote a report uh, that we published through Unidir about um, developing anti-satellite test guidelines. So one of the reasons that I wanted to address this issue is that I think it's 
relatively low hanging fruit in the sense that we all we are we all have an interest in not generating debris. Like you said, when debris is created, then it, it could potentially affect anyone. And so in order to continue benefiting, benefiting from all of our space systems, we should try and figure out what are some of the things that we can all agree on, like that we can have wide consensus. And a pretty straightforward one seems to be that not that many people seem to want kinetic direct ascent ASAT missiles, so anti-satellite missiles. But for the people who do want them and who do want to, or at least have the capabilities of destroying uh, an object in space intentionally, um, at least do it in such a way that will not create a bigger debris problem. So I put three principles into five words. Uh, and these are based on uh, recommendations that were made by another group of governmental experts uh, when they published their report in 2013. The idea is no debris. So if you're going to test an anti a kinetic anti-satellite uh, system, don't create debris. Low debris. If you have to create debris, like the Indians just did because they you know, obviously wanted to hit something to prove that they could do it, do it at an altitude low enough so that it doesn't leave long-lasting debris. And then notification. Tell somebody. Um, sometimes if you do a test like this, uh, you can make a lot of other people very nervous. They could potentially think that it is uh, a different type of launch or that you're trying to hit something else. So in order to not heighten tensions and make other people um, you know, a very, very nervous, uh, you should probably at least call someone and say, this is what we're doing, and here are some of the measures that we've taken to make sure that we're not going to create debris. It seems like low-hanging fruit. I'm sure if we... Put some put some efforts behind this. We could do it. Um, and there's there seems to already be a general consensus that, well, not a consensus, but at least a norm building that uh, if someone is going to do something like this and they're going to destroy a satellite in space, they should do it. Mm, it seems like somewhere between two hundred and three hundred kilometers is about the uh, the acceptable range, at least. Um, like the Indians are, of course, going to get some criticism. But in general, uh, they're not getting criticized nearly as much as the Chinese did in 2007. Well, I think I should probably let you go soon to uh, catch your flight because you've got to fly. You said you were heading to London to talk about space situational awareness. Uh, I'm actually going to listen uh, to uh, a conference on military space situational awareness. Um, so, like I said, this issue of verification is really important. Um, so I'm delighted to have an opportunity to go and hang out with some uh, technicians and to be able to learn about it. Sounds fantastic. Do you have anything that you wanted to finish up with? Any last thoughts? Um, a note of hope, I suppose. Um, the last two weeks were uh, definitely draining, um, and it was, a, it was a pity that we weren't able to, to reach consensus uh, within the group of governmental experts. But I do think that we generated some really great ideas, and I hope that we're able to build on them. I think we can all hope for that. Thank you so much um, for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know it's very early in Geneva. So thank you so much for waking up and, um, and podcasting. Uh, if people want to know more, they can follow you on Twitter. Is that right? So your handle would be? It's at space D-A porous, uh, P-O-R-R-A-S. Um, but you can also check out our website, uh, unidir.ch, uh, unidir I think, um, for Switzerland. Uh, or you can just look up, mm -hmm. yeah, Google Unidir, uh, U-N-I-D-I-R, 
Um, and yeah, we have plenty of more information there and you can also find some of our reports. Fantastic, thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot, Amy. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. If you would like to find out more about anything in the podcast, you can tweet me on at ahandmer. That's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R. For fellow Black Sabbath fans, I'll now leave you with the rest of the song. For the rest of you, until next time. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Wash minds. Oh, larger.
darkness world stops turning Ashes where the body's burning No more war pigs have the power And as God has struck the hour Day of judgment God is calling Underneath the war pigs crawling Begging mercies for the sins Satan laughing spreads his wings Oh Lord, yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.